Every year in my town, there's this fantastic crafts in the park. It's always the day before Mother's Day, so it's fun to go and shop and get lots of cool stuff. At any rate, I came across One Earth Body Care, and it changed my life. Now, you may think I'm being hyperbolic, but I'm not. I am extraordinarily smelly, and I have tried every natural deodorant under the sun. Nothing has worked except for their fantastic natural deodorant. They have a variety of scents. They are non-greasy, cream-based formula, baking soda-free. Magnesium hydroxide keeps odor at bay, and let me tell you, it sure does. Organic and gentle, and they have wonderful enchanting essential oil aromas. My favorite is vanilla rose, there's vanilla spice, lavender lime, lemongrass, cedar, sage. They also have wonderful shampoo bars, changed my daughter's life. Her hair looks amazing and conditioner bars. They have wonderful salves for dry skin and so much more. So please check them out at oneearthbodycare.com. Once you have had a wonderful dog, a life without one is a life diminished. That's a quote by author Dean Coots, and I couldn't agree more. I want my wonderful dogs to live as long as possible, and what they eat plays a huge role in their health and longevity. Kibble is full of seed oils that wreak havoc on our dog's health. They damage their microbiome, which affects digestion, oral health, their skin and coat, and more. And that's why I feed my dog, Benji, Yum Woof. Their air-dried food is GMO-free and has an inflammation-reducing recipe with omega-3 and coconut oil. It's all the benefits of fresh food without the fridge, carbs, filler, seed oils, and other inflammatory ingredients you see in other brands. Yum Woof obsessively crafted a healthy, low-carb food with humanely raised USDA meat, eggs, and other non-GMO superfoods that my dog loves. Try the number one air-dried dog food for gut health for 50% off a trial of Yum Woof. That's 50% off a trial of Yum Woof. Go to www.yumwoof.com. That's www.yumwoof.com. You and your dog will be so glad you did. When I was a kid, there was a song that I had heard through my parents or grandparents, and it's called, I think it's called uh, I Remember It Well. And it's by Hermine Gingold and Maurice Chavelier. I don't know how to say his name. But, you know, I, I take any chance to sing on the show. So we met at nine. We met at eight. I was on time. No, you were late. Ah, yes, I remember it. Well, and then we dined with friends. We dined alone. A tenor sang, a baritone. And it just shows that our memories are different. We remember things differently. Sometimes we have false memories. Sometimes we have a great memory. And then all of a sudden we're like, I'd, I've been looking for my car keys. The other night I had my glasses on top of my head. I'm looking everywhere. I mean... Our memories are a very fascinating thing, and I'm thrilled to have back on the show the fantastic Dr. Andrew E. Budson and Elizabeth A. Kensinger is joining us as well. They are the co-authors of this amazing book, Why We Forget and How to Remember Better, The Science of Memory. Dr. Andrew E. Budson is Chief Cognitive and Behavioral Neurology at the Veterans Affairs Boston Healthcare System, Lecturer in Neurology at Harvard Medical School and Chair of the Science of Learning Innovation Group at the Harvard Medical School Academy. Graduating cum laude from Harvard Medical School in 1993, he has given over 750 local, national, international, grand rounds, and other talks, published over 125 scientific papers, reviews, and book chapters, and co-authored or edited eight books. 
Elizabeth Kensinger graduated summa cum laude from Harvard University with a joint degree in psychology and biology. She received her PhD in neuroscience from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. After postdoctoral training in radiology at Massachusetts General Hospital and psychology at Harvard University, she joined the faculty at Boston College. She is now professor of psychology and neuroscience at Boston College, where she directs a cognitive and effective neuroscience laboratory. Welcome to Health Power, and thank you for putting up with my singing. <laughs> well, thanks thanks so much for having us, and I think you sing great. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, well, I thought that was kind of a clever way, because even recently, I think it was with my husband, we were talking about some event, and I was like, no, no, we, it was over there. No, it was here. No, it was there. No, you were there. No, I was doing... And it seems like a lot of those things happen. So I want to jump right into the book. In the introduction, you have Daniel L. Schachter, Ph.D., And he wrote, you will see that memory is not a single thing, but instead composed of several distinct systems, each associated with a particular brain network. Dr. Budson, if you can expand on this. Yes, absolutely. So it turns out that the memory that we use to remember what happened yesterday or our last birthday, you know, those are memories for episodes of our life. And so we call that episodic memory. And there's certain brain structures and brain networks that are important for that. That system, which is the one that we'll talk mostly about on, on the program, is, uh, is based on a structure called the, the hippocampus. And it's one of the few pieces of anatomy I'm going to throw out there because it's, so, it's just so important. And then... Our ability to remember like facts and knowledge and other pieces of information that have meaning, uh, that's actually a slightly separate uh, memory system. We call that semantic memory. The word semantic simply means meaning. So it's our memory for meanings, for words, for names of people, and what things are, uh, uh, things like that. And then um, one of the other types of memories that we use every day is our called procedural memory, which is our memory for procedures and habits. So like how you uh, drive a car, you know, how, how you, you know, do up buttons on your shirt. All of those are uh, procedural memories. And one of the cool things about procedural memories is unlike episodic memory and semantic memory, procedural memory is implicit. It's unconscious. You don't need to be thinking about what you're doing to drive the car or do your buttons up uh, or tie your shoes. Those things can all happen automatically. And then we have uh, memory for keeping information in your mind. Uh, So if you're trying to follow a route, not from your phone, but actually from your (laughs) head, you're using your, uh, your working memory. We also use that memory. If we're trying to keep uh, online, you know, seven people's drink orders, and we keep saying them over <laughs> and over to ourselves so we don't, uh, so we don't forget them. Uh, so those are uh, sort of four of the most, uh, the most basic, important uh, memory systems in the brain. And there's even more, but those are the most important ones. So I listened to Howard Stern, and he's a great interviewer, by the way. What happens is they'll repeat shows, and I'll be listening, and then it might even be a month later, and I'll hear a show I've heard before, and I'll immediately picture where exactly where I was the last time I heard it. Dr. Kenister, what 
Ken Singer, apologize. What, what's going on there? We talk about memory as being a process of rebuilding a past moment in time, especially when we're talking about those memories from past episodes, like, like you're talking about there. And it really is the case that what can happen is you get one piece of that episode back. It could be that you hear this interview you've heard before. It could be that you're walking down the street past a location that you walked by previously. And suddenly your brain actually starts to complete all of the other pieces of that past episode. And what's really fascinating is that's a really, it it feels instantaneous and it might sometimes feel effortless, but actually it's a really active and difficult process for the brain to have to rebuild all of that content. And so it's one of the places where those mistakes can be made. So you can think that you remember very perfectly where you were the last time you heard that episode, but you may later be confronted with information that causes you to realize that actually that was a different (laughs) episode when that was where you were, right? So we can, um, in that building process, mistakes can be made. Ah, okay. That's interesting. Now you write in the book about a very interesting man, Henry Molaison, Dr. Kensinger. Tell us about him. Yeah. So Henry was one of the patients that was really critical for us recognizing the importance of that hippocampus, that brain structure that Andrew mentioned earlier as being so important for episodic memory. And what happened was that Henry had an experimental surgery to try to treat epilepsy that was very severe and interfering with his daily life. And his hippocampi were removed on both sides of the brain, as well as some of the tissue surrounding them. And while that surgery was successful in so far as it reduced the severity of his seizures, it unexpectedly left him with a complete inability to form any new memories for new episodes that took place um, since you know the, the age at which he had that operation, which was when he was in his late 20s. And so he lived for you know many decades afterwards, um, and yet he did not have any consciously accessible memories for events that had happened to him. But as Andrew mentioned, there are other types of memories that don't need the hippocampus. And so it also was equally important that scientists realized that Henry did actually retain the ability to learn new skills. Those procedural memories were actually intact. And so there was a lot of ways in which everything that had happened to him in the 50 or so years after his surgery had continued to shape and influence his behavior and the way that he navigated his environment and interacted with others. But he just didn't have any conscious access to all of those experiences that had transpired. But he knew how to unlock a tricky door or something, right? He did. So the story that we tell in the book was from when I was a graduate student at MIT working with him and we were navigating on a, on a cold day through some underground tunnels. And at one point you come to a set of doors that had quite a tricky mechanism to unlock the both of them to be able to go through. Um, and so I'm kind of fumbling around and, and Henry just moves forward and undoes this complicated locking mechanism and we're able to be on our way. Um, but of course, while that was one of the first First times I'd come across that lock, Henry had been to you know to MIT many many times over the years, uh, helping scientists there to understand memory, and so he had presumably been to that door and seen that lock undone many times. So it, again, it was just a really nice example of that distinction where he couldn't tell you he'd been in those passageways before or on the MIT campus before, but his behavior was clearly indicating that he had retained some of that knowledge. So is the procedural memory not? 
associated with the hippocampus? Is that why he's able to still be able to do that since they took that out? Exactly. Exactly. So that's those different brain networks that we were talking about at the beginning where you need the hippocampus for episodic memory, but you don't, and to some extent for semantic, but you don't need it in the same, to the same extent for procedural memory. Now, Dr. Budson, at the same time, you write about how memory systems depend upon each other. So for him... He still has some, but for people who didn't have that situation, obviously, how do they depend upon each other? Let's say you want to do something like uh, you want to learn how to drive. So in order to be able to learn how to drive, you have to first be able to memorize a series of, of steps. And you'll usually do that using your episodic memory. You know, for example, you know, you want to sit down in the car, you want to adjust your seat, you want to adjust uh, the mirrors, uh, you want to put your seatbelt on, you want to put the key in the ignition, you know, and turn uh, the key. I guess I'm dating myself to say you still use a key to, <laughs> to turn a car on. And, and then you have all these different steps. And then once you begin uh, to perform these uh, steps, you know, then it actually becomes part of your procedural memory when you do them again and again and again and again and you practice them. So things can sort of start off as episodic memory the first time you're learning how to do a new skill, but after you've done it uh, many, many times, then it becomes part of your uh, procedural memory. So our memory systems, at least in the healthy individual, they really do uh, work together uh, day in and day out. And muscle memory is something that I think of that comes, does that come from procedural memory, if I read it correctly? Yeah, so muscle memory is essentially another name for procedural uh, memory. Uh, but of course, you know, the memory is not really in the muscles, it's really no. in the brain. <laughs> now, in chapter three, you've got working memory. Dr. Kenzinger, what is working memory? So working memory is really the active content that's in our minds right now. And I think it's really interesting because we often don't think of that as memory. I think when we colloquially use the word memory, we're talking about long-term memory, things from that have happened in the past and some time has intervened. But it turns out that it's also a type of memory that allows us just to be processing this conversation. If you think about what is required, I have to be holding all of the words that you said in mind so that when you get to the end of the question, I can put it all together and understand what what you're asking. If someone is giving you their phone number or spelling their name, all of that, you have to be taking that information, briefly storing it, and then putting it all together. And it's because there is that brief storage process that it really is a memory system. And again, it's a very different set of brain regions that are involved in working memory than are involved in the longer term storage of information. But it's a really critical piece of the memory uh, process where you can imagine that having that information in working memory, thinking about it, manipulating it is actually one of the important ways that we can increase the likelihood that it actually gets transferred into long-term memory stores. So for students, we often want to be talking about, you know, how do you keep that information active in mind, you know, reviewing, you know, the notes right after you leave the classroom or really focusing your attention on what the professor is saying. That's really about working memory, but that's also an important first step toward long-term storage. And Dr. Budson, what about sensory memory? So sensory memory is 
our ability to remember uh, a sensation, whether it's a sight or a sound or a smell or a taste, for a very brief period of time, uh, from anywhere from half a second to two seconds. It, it's one of the ways that, you know, if you uh, bite into an apple, you can uh, sort of consciously think about all the different uh, tastes that are sort of bursting onto your tongue and the smells uh, that your nose is is getting. And if you focus on them, within a few seconds, you'll be able to remember them, uh, you know, if you, if you want to. Whereas if we don't focus on that sensory memory, then typically uh, those sensations are gone. And so it's this part of memory that's right in between perception and memory. Uh, I see. And what's so great about your book is you share all these fantastic ways about how to remember better. So when it comes to, let's say, episodic memory, Dr. Kensinger, what are some tips that you share? And I want everyone to get the book, so (laughs) we're just going to touch on a few of these. Uh, So one of the mnemonics that we have in the book is the mnemonic of four, F-O-U-R. And it's really about the four things that you can do really well information is still in working memory to increase the likelihood that it gets into long-term memory stores. The F is for focus attention. It sounds the simplest, but it's the hardest to execute. It's the reason why we walk around with our glasses on the top of our heads is that we're not actually <laughs> paying attention to where, yeah. you know, that we put them up there. We're not paying attention to the sensation of them on our heads. So focusing attention is always the the kind of start of everything, I, I would say, and the most important thing to, to try to fix if you're finding that you do have those frustrating memory lapses of not knowing where something is in, in the house, for instance. The O is to organize the information The U is to understand the meaning of the information. And the R is to relate the information to either something you already know or to something that is important to you otherwise. And I'll add that another thing the R can stand for is to repeat the information, to rehearse it, to to have that repetition built in. And so I think the extent to which you need to organize or understand or relate will differ a little bit depending on the complexity of the content. Sometimes it's really the understanding piece that is essential if you're you know, studying for a, a science class or a history class. Um, other times it may really be the you know, relating the content to something that you already know. Um, so there can be different emphases there. But I think in general, doing those four things is likely to really increase the likelihood that information stays in memory for the long term. And that covers all the different types of memories we talked about. So that's really, it's really most important for the consciously accessible forms of memory, though there is some overlap there um, with how we learn new skills as well. So you can imagine that, you know, trying to focus on what someone is is telling you about how to tie your shoes, understanding why there are those steps, organizing their order, right? All of those are going to be important for skill learning as well. Um, But in terms of stabilizing skill learning, um, fortunately, it doesn't require as much of the same um, kind of effortful process as as consciously accessible forms of long-term memory do. You know, I like in the book that you bring up anxiety and stress. I And I think you have an example of this in the book as well that I'm similar to what I'm sharing. When I was in college, it was anthropology one. 
And I studied and studied and studied and studied. And then I got to the test and I just completely blanked. I didn't even know what bipedalism was. Like it was ridiculous. Yeah, absolutely. I think it really emphasizes, um, you know, stress is good and bad for, for memory. Um, what it's really bad for is retrieving information from memory. And the way I like to think about it is, you know, stress is really the sign that there is some threat in the environment, right? And of course, now we have overgeneralized that to things that don't need the kind of fight or flight response in, in the ways that other threats would. But still, what all of that is signaling is there's something right now that's happening that requires all of our focus. And so that would be a really bad moment to start thinking about all the past things you, that you've learned and all of those past episodes, right? You really want to be in the present moment. Um, but that does unfortunately mean that for something like test anxiety, what's happening is that stress is actually preventing successful retrieval. The way that it's interfering with the hippocampal function is making it really hard for the hippocampus to retrieve. And instead, what it's doing is it's creating a pretty durable memory of that current experience, right? So you still, many years later, have this memory of this college class and of this, you know, stressful exam. And so that can also start a vicious cycle where someone who experiences that type of anxiety once, then the next time they go into the exam, as we talked about, there are those cues that bring you back to these prior moments. Someone is back kind of re-experiencing that prior episode of exam anxiety, and then it starts to repeat. Um, so it is really, you know, important. And we give some strategies in the book about thinking about how to really stop that cycle, which often, you know, the first step is just to recognize that we all can have those moments where we become so anxious that we can't retrieve the content. And the first thing to try to do is just to figure out, you know, what works for us to just calm ourselves down a little bit to remember that, you know, usually if you can get your stress levels lower, the memories will actually start to come back. You'll remember the exam content. You'll remember the person's name or the movie, you know, location, whatever it is that you're trying to come up with. Bipedalism, by the way, is just walking upright. I mean, but that was like the most basic thing that we learned. And I'm like, I don't know what this is. It was pretty bad. You know, nowadays, a lot of people talk about multitasking. And I've read that there really isn't such a thing. And if you're doing it, it's not good because Dr. Kensinger, you just mentioned about the attention. Dr. Budson, can you talk about multitasking? Ab absolutely. It's, uh, it's something that, you know, has really become highly prevalent in our uh, society that, you know, I, uh, uh, many, many people in their teens, in their 20s, and I have a 26-year-old daughter, so I think I'm allowed to say this, uh, you know, they, they multitask uh, with everything, you know, all day long. They're, you know, in class, but they're also, you know, on Facebook, or they're doing their homework, but they're also, you know, messaging, you know, their friends, and and things like that. And, you know, some of the worst things can be, you know, some people, you know, I know I see them in their cars are even driving and texting and, and doing other tasks like that. And, and just as you were saying, Lisa, I mean, we, we really cannot do two things at once, at least not anywhere close to the uh, way that we're able to do uh, one thing at a time. You know, I, I think sometimes we, we feel we can do two things at the same time, but you really, you really can't. You're really switching back and forth between uh, uh, different tasks. And so it just really doesn't work well. And the way it relates to memory is that, you know, if there's anything that you're trying to remember, whether it's 
you know, remembering what your friend is telling you, what your spouse is telling you, uh, what your professor is saying, what you're trying to, you know, learn from your homework. You know, you really need to uh, use that four mnemonic that Elizabeth was saying, and you really need to focus your uh, attention. And you just can't do that if you're multitasking. So, you know, if you're trying to remember things, uh, try not to multitask. Now in chapter four, episodic memory, travel back in time, you talk about encoding episodic memories. Can you expand on that, Dr. Kensinger? Yeah, so encoding is really that process of creating a memory to begin with and creating something that has the opportunity at least to be stored for the long term. And so we analogize that to building a structure out of blocks. So every experience that we have has lots of different components to it. It's happening in a particular place at a particular time. There are other objects around, other people around potentially. And so all of those are different pieces of that experience that have to be kind of taped together. And we talk about the hippocampus as basically serving as that tape that actually sticks all of those different building blocks together to create that encoded episode, you know, literally a code that the brain has for that event that then has the opportunity to be stored. And I'm using that because, of course, we all know that we've had those memories where we have them briefly, but we don't have them over the long term. So just right. because we create that code, it doesn't mean it's going to last for a long time. But it, ha- it that's the first step for things being able to last a long time. You know, another uh, funny thing is my husband and I were watching, we haven't watched Survivor in a long time, but this was a few years ago, and we were watching this, this season with our daughter, and my husband are like, that's so weird. I thought this, and we're like, oh my God, we already watched this. Oh my God, we know who won. We, how did we forget that we watched that? That is uh, totally normal. And it's actually, it, it gets uh, a little bit at the title of our book, which is Why We Forget. And, and sort of on purpose, you know, our brains are designed to not bother remembering all sorts of useless sort of <laughs> trivial information, such as like television shows, you know, that are just there for entertainment. So I actually think it's a really good thing that you didn't, you know, remember it because, you know, we, you know, you want to be remembering important things in your life, like things about your, your family and your, you know, your friends and, and, you know, vacations you took together and other and other things like that. And so, you know, there's, there's all sorts of different um, cues that even when you're not trying to sort of uh, sort out, you know, like, oh, this is something I want to remember, this is something I don't want to remember, you don't even have to do that. You know, your brain just takes care of prioritizing, you know, what is information that is important, important to you, and it gets sort of tagged as something that, you know, you're going to, you know, try to remember that it's going to hold on to for a long time. And it can forget the things that, uh, that you don't need. And I'll just share that one of the things that I found was very interesting that I did not know until I did some research uh, in the writing of this book is that sleep uh, appears to be one of the important times that we sort of either hold on to a memory or we let it go and we let it sort of fade away. 
and um, and so we uh, forget things every day, and this is a good thing. You know, uh, you don't want to remember like you know every ingredient that you put into your sandwich every day. You know, at lunch, you know, ten ten years later, you know, that's just not that's just not important. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Okay, that's good to know, because we were looking at each other like, what the heck is going on here? Now, in Chapter 12, are you sure that's not a false memory? Dr. Kensinger, talk to us about false memories. So false memories are very common, and they result so frequently because of this fact that when we're talking about episodic memories, again, we have to be building a representation of the event at the time it's taking place. And then later on, when we want to bring that event back to mind, we have to actually be rebuilding. So we analogize it to sort of using the blueprints that are stored in the hippocampus, but then actually having to use those blueprints to find the right building blocks, to put the building blocks back in their proper order. So it's very easy to read the blueprint incorrectly or to grab the wrong building block or to put it in the wrong place. And in so doing, to really change the meaning of the event or to combine across experiences. So these sorts of memory errors are extremely common. And I would say maybe more the the rule than the exception. And so it is one of the interesting aspects of memory that if you really start to dig into an event that you're reminiscing about with someone, a lot of the time you'll actually find that at some level of specificity, people's memories start to diverge, you know, where they they think that they were in two different places or they think that other people were there. Um, and again, usually the, the gist of the memory is the same across all of the people. That, that That's right. People aren't debating that there was a dinner with friends from college or something, right? But again, the specifics, what restaurant, what did we eat, who exactly was there, right? Those sorts of details can really start to diverge from what actually happened. And I think that one of the things, just like we were saying that forgetting is good, I think it's important to recognize that those distortions are actually an indication that memory is doing what it's supposed to be doing. Because memory really isn't helpful because it's holding on to really specific details of the past. It's helpful because it's holding on to the kind of general things that have happened in the past and allowing us to really quickly use those different memories to figure out what is going on in the present moment or to be able to think about what might happen tomorrow or a month from now or when I take this next trip, right? Being able to plan in ways that are tied to past experiences and past knowledge but you don't need all of the specific details of those past experiences. And so often those are either forgotten or even if you think that they're there, they may be distorted in at least some subtle ways. All right. That's helpful. Now, one more thing before we get to do the right things, the exercise and nutrition, the sleeping, all that good stuff. In chapter 16, those who remember everything, you, you write the myth of photographic memory. That's so interesting because people, oh, my God, I have a photographic memory. So what's, what's the myth? What's going on, Dr. Budson? Well, yes. So, yeah, it, it just turns out people, there, there really isn't uh, a photographic memory where, where people really glance at a page and, you know, remember uh, everything that's there. There are people with, uh, as we write about, highly superior autobiographical memories where they can remember things about themselves and where they were and what they were doing and what they had for dinner actually uh, quite well. 
But if you give those individuals like ordinary memory tests, they don't actually do that much better. They just are really, really good at remembering things about themselves. And I would say we don't totally understand, you know, why some people just sort of have this uh, type of uh, ability. One of the things that we, we note is um, although we have sort of everybody with sort of normal memory and then we have people with highly superior autobiographical memory, we don't actually find people sort of in between. So these people are really doing something that's qualitatively a, a little bit different. But we do suspect that it boils down to the way that a, a chess master can, for example, glance at a chessboard and be able to remember exactly where all the pieces were. And that's because they have sort of learned, they've trained themselves, you know, over time after, you know, looking at, you know, thousands and hundreds of thousands of, of chess boards and being able to, you know, understand the importance of where every piece is, you know, that they can be able to remember that. But yet those same chess masters, if you arrange the chess pieces on a board in a way that could not have come up naturally during a game, they are actually as uh, bad as everybody else at remembering those uh, pieces. So uh, photographic memories, yeah, we don't really think they exist, but there are people who are very good at, at remembering some types of autobiographical information. Well, before we go today, I do want to focus, of course, on exercising. I love that you call it the elixir of life, nutrition, you are what you eat, you're sleeping well. Then you talk about activity, music, mindfulness, brain training. You have techniques to remember better. Dr. Budson, in the last few minutes, if you want to touch on these things. Again, I like people to get the book, so we just you know give them a taste here. But it's, it's such an – I just want to congratulate both of you. I mean, this is really an amazing book. Yeah, so I'll just say just very uh, uh, briefly, so uh, aerobic exercise has been shown to not only reduce your risk of developing strokes in the future, but also to release growth factors in the brain that allows you to grow new brain cells. And that's been shown to correlate with the both the amount of exercise you do and with your memory uh, performance. In terms of nutrition, it's important to eat a Mediterranean uh, menu of uh, foods that has really been shown again and again to be uh, the healthy uh, thing to do. Uh, it is important to get enough uh, sleep. We can't go through all the different reasons why, but uh, we want you to uh, sleep at least uh, six hours uh, a night, and it, it can be in naps. And you know, you need to find the right amount of sleep for you. Uh, eight hours is the average in terms of time in bed. Uh, doesn't have you don't have to be, go to sleep immediately, but at least eight hours time in bed, more like seven and a half hours of of sleep, and then you know there's all sorts of ways that you can use mindfulness and activities and music uh, to help you uh, remember things better. And brain training games, uh, we we'd like to see a little bit more evidence on those. I would say those have not really been been proven to be that that helpful, and maybe I'll. I'll let uh, Elizabeth talk about, you know, just one or two uh, memory aids or strategies that she would like to, to mention. Yeah, so we, we really try to cover the whole range. So I'm not going to talk about the sort of professional mnemonics, but we do go into the ways if anyone wants to win a 
competition from memorizing pi to you know as many digits as possible we have some some strategies in there that can work for that but i think for combating the everyday frustrations of memory it is important to think about you know at that encoding stage that mnemonic of four being critical at the storage stage, I think it's really about those lifestyle factors that we were just talking about, you know, exercise, sleep, nutrition, those are key. And then at the retrieval stage, um, you know, I think it's really important to not kind of thwart your own retrieval is the way that, we, that we've been talking about it. it, by which I mean, first of all, don't get, you know, try to calm yourself down if you're realizing that you're getting stressed out because you can't remember something. But also don't try to come up with possible answers because that actually can block you from being able to retrieve the correct answer. Oh. And so instead, what you want to do is think about kind of general other information that you know to be true. So if you're trying to think of someone's name, don't generate possibilities. But instead, what do you remember about them? Maybe it was where you last saw them or you remember that they enjoy wildlife photography or that they have a daughter of a certain age. And as you start to bring that content to mind, the way that our memories work is that that will actually cue other information. And it's very likely that that will bring the name back. So that's a much more effective strategy is imagining where you last were when you knew the content or learned it or what other information you have. Um, so I think for those retrieval failures, those are the most important pieces of advice. Well, there's so much incredible advice and information in the book. Again, why we forget and how to remember better the science of memory. I want to thank you both so much for coming on. And I really highly encourage everybody to get this book. Uh, Dr. Kensinger, where can we find out more about you and then Dr. Budson? So I uh, have a website at Boston College. It's the BC Can Lab, C-A-N-L-A-B.com. So you can learn more about my lab's research and also find links to our book there. Great. And Dr. Budson? Yes. And my website is andrewbudsonmd.com. One last thing. Uh, Dr. Kensinger, how did you two come together for this book? Yeah, so I meant to ask that in the beginning. Yeah. So we've, we've known each other for quite a while. We actually had the opportunity to work together in Dan Schachter's lab. Um, oh, nice. And so it was, it was a sort of wonderful uh, timing where toward the beginning of the pandemic, Andrew had approached me about this idea for this book. And I had really, you know, separately been thinking that it would be so nice to have just accessible information on the science of memory, because I find that there are so many students who don't know the information that we, we reviewed in the book, but also a number of educators who I didn't feel knew that information as well as you know other professionals. Um, and so I was really excited to have this opportunity to reconnect with Andrew uh, many years later and, and to work on the book with him. Oh, that's awesome. All right. Well, I want to thank you both again. Everybody keep coming back to Health Power. And while you're here, it's on the same platform. Check out Dog Eared if you like to read books about dogs and get to listen to authors who've written incredible books on all topics relating to dogs, be sure to listen to Dog Eared. You can find me on social media at Lisa Davis MPH on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram. Thanks so much and have a great day. Well, that's it for our show today. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate you and we would appreciate it if you could please rate and review and leave a comment because the more you engage with our podcast, the more you will find it and help other people find it wherever they listen to their podcast. So be sure to follow us. I'm at Andrea Donsky and at Naturally Savvy and Lisa at Lisa Davis MPH. Thank you so much. And please share this episode because the more you share shows you care. We'll see you next time.